Section 30 of the $30,000 Bequest and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. The $30,000 Bequest and Other Stories by Mark Twain. Section 30. Does the Race of Man Love a Lord? Often a quite acidified remark becomes sanctified by use and petrified by custom. It is then a permanency, its term of activity a geologic period. The day after the arrival of Prince Henry, I met an English friend, and he rubbed his hands and broke out with a remark that was charged to the brim with joy, a joy that was evidently a pleasant salve to an old sore place. Many a time I have had to listen without retort to an old saying that is irritatingly true, and until now seem to offer no chance for a return jibe. An Englishman does dearly love a lord. But after this I shall talk back and say, how about the Americans? It is a curious thing, the currency that an idiotic saying can get. The man that first says it thinks he has made a discovery. The man he says it to thinks the same. It departs on its travels, is received everywhere with admiring acceptance, and not only as a piece of rare and acute observation, but as being exhaustively true and profoundly wise. And so it presently takes its place in the world's list of recognized and established wisdoms. And after that, no one thinks of examining it to see whether it is really entitled to its high honors or not. I call to mind instances of this in two well-established proverbs, whose dullness is not surpassed by the one about the Englishman and his love for a lord. One of them records the American's adoration of the almighty dollar. The other, the American millionaire's girl's ambition to trade cash for a title, with a husband thrown in. It isn't merely the American that adores the almighty dollar. It is the human race. The human race has always adored the hatful of shells, or the bale of calico, or the half bushel of brass rings, or the handful of steel fish hooks, or the houseful of black wives, or the Zareba full of cattle, or the two-score camels and asses, or the factory, or the farm, or the block of buildings, or the railroad bonds, or the bank stock, or the hoarded cash, or anything that stands for wealth and consideration and independence, and can secure to the possessor that most precious of all things, another man's envy. It was a dull person that invented the idea that the American's devotion to the dollar is more strenuous than another's. Rich American girls do buy titles, but they did not invent that idea. It had been worn threadbare several hundred centuries before America was discovered. European girls still exploit it as briskly as ever, and, when a title is not to be had for the money in hand, they buy the husband without it. They must put up the dot, or there is no trade. The commercialization of brides is substantially universal, except in America. It exists with us, to some little extent, but in no degree approaching a custom. The Englishman dearly loves a lord. What is the soul and source of this love? I think the thing could be more correctly worded. The human race dearly envies a lord. That is to say, it envies the lord's place. Why? On two accounts, I think. Its power and its conspicuousness. Where conspicuousness carries with it a power which, by the light of our own observation and experience, we are able to measure and comprehend, 
I think our envy of the possessor is as deep and as passionate as is that of any other nation. No one can care less for a lord than a backwoodsman, who has had no personal contact with lords, and has seldom heard them spoken of. But I will not allow that any Englishman has a profounder envy of a lord, than has the average American who has lived long years in a European capital, and fully learned how immense is the position the lord occupies. Of any ten thousand Americans who eagerly gather, at vast inconvenience, to get a glimpse of Prince Henry, all but a couple hundred will be there out of an immense curiosity. They are burning up with desire to see a personage who is so much talked about. They envy him. But it is conspicuousness they envy mainly. Not the power that is lodged in his royal quality and position, for they have but a vague and spectral knowledge and appreciation of that. Though their environment and associations they have been accustomed to regard such things lightly, and as not being very real, consequently they are not able to value them enough to consumingly envy them. But, whenever an American, or other human being, is in the presence, for the first time, of a combination of great power and conspicuousness, which he thoroughly understands and appreciates, his eager curiosity and pleasure will be well sodden with that other passion, envy, whether he suspects it or not. At any time, on any day, in any part of America, you can confer a happiness upon any passing stranger by calling his attention to any other passing stranger and saying, Do you see that gentleman going along there? It is Mr. Rockefeller. Watch his eye. It is a combination of power and conspicuousness which the man understands. When we understand rank, we always like to rub against it. When a man is conspicuous, we always want to see him. Also, if he will pay us an attention, we will manage to remember it. Also, we will mention it now and then, casually, sometimes to a friend, or if a friend is not handy, we will make out with a stranger. Well then, what is rank, and what is conspicuousness? At once we think of kings and aristocracies, of worldwide celebrities and soldierships, the arts, letters, etc., and we stop there, but that is a mistake. Rank holds its court and receives its homage on every round of the ladder, from the emperor down to the rat-catcher, and distinction also exists on every round of the ladder, and commands its due of deference and envy. To worship rank and distinction is the dear and valued privilege of all the human race, and it is freely and joyfully exercised in democracies as well as in monarchies, and even, to some extent, among those creatures whom we impertinently call the lower animals. For even they have some poor little vanities and foibles, though in this matter they are paupers as compared to us. A Chinese emperor has the worship of his four hundred million subjects, but the rest of the world is indifferent to him. A Christian emperor has the worship of his subjects and of a large part of the Christian world outside of his domains, but he is a matter of indifference to all China. A king, class A, has an extensive worship. A king, class B, has a less extensive worship. Class C, Class D, Class E, get a steadily diminishing share of worship. Class L, Sultan of Zanzibar, Class P, Sultan of Sula, and Class W, half king of Samoa, get no worship at all outside their own little patch of sovereignty. Take the distinguished people along down. Each has his group of homage payers. In the navy, there are many groups. They start with the secretary and the admiral. 
and go down to the quartermaster, and below, for there will be groups among the sailors, and each of these groups have a tar who is distinguished for his battles, or his strength, or his daring, or his profanity, and is admired and envied by his group. The same with the army, the same with the literary and journalistic craft, the publishing craft, the cod fishery craft, standard oil, U.S. steel, the class A hotel, and the rest of the alphabet in that line, the class A prize fighter, and the rest of the alphabet in his line, clear down to the lowest and obscurest six-boy gang of little gamins, with its one boy that can thrash the rest, and to whom he is king of Samoa, bottom of the royal race, but looked up to with the most ardent admiration and envy. There is something pathetic, and funny, and pretty, about this human race's fondness for contact with power and distinction, and for the reflected glory it gets out of it. The king, class A, is happy in the state banquet and the military show which the emperor provides for him. And he goes home and gathers the queen and the princelings around him in the privacy of the spare room, and tells them all about it, and says, his imperial majesty put his hand upon my shoulder in the most friendly way just as friendly and familiar oh you can't imagine it and everyone seeing him do it charming perfectly charming the king class g is happy in the cold collation and the police parade provided for him by the king class b and goes home and tells the family all about it and says and his majesty took me into his private cabinet for a smoke and a chat there we sat just as sociable and talking away and laughing and chatting just the same as if we had been born in the same bunk and all the servants in the anteroom could see us doing it oh it was too lovely for anything the king class q is happy in the modest entertainment furnished him by the king class m and goes home and tells the household about it and is grateful and joyful over it as his predecessors in the gaudier attentions that had fallen to their larger lot emperors kings artisans peasants big people little people at the bottom we are all alike and all the same all just alike on the inside and when our clothes are off nobody can tell which of us is which we are unanimous in the pride we take in good and genuine compliments paid us and distinctions conferred upon us in attentions shown there is not one of us from the emperor down but is made like that do I mean attentions shown us by the guest? No, I simply mean flattering attentions. Let them come whence they may. We despise no source that can pay us a pleasing attention. There is no source that is humble enough for that. You have heard a dear little girl say to a frowsy and disreputable dog, He came right to me and let me pat him on the head, and he wouldn't let the others touch him. And you have seen her eyes dance with pride in that high distinction you have often seen that if the child were a princess would that random dog be able to confer the light glory upon her with his pretty compliment yes and even in her mature life and seated upon a throne she would still remember it still recall it still speak of it with frank satisfaction that charming and lovable german princess and poet carmen silva queen of romania remembers yet that the flowers of the woods and fields talked to her when she was a girl, and she sets it down in her latest book, and that the squirrels conferred upon her and her father the valued compliment of not being afraid of them, and once one of them, holding a nut between its sharp little teeth, ran right up against my father, 
It has the very note of, He came right up to me and let me pat him on the head. And when it saw itself reflected in his boot, it was very much surprised, and stopped for a long time to contemplate itself in the polished leather. Then it went its way. And the birds, she still remembers with pride that they came boldly into my room. When she had neglected her duty and put no food on the window sill for them, she knew all the wild birds and forgets the royal crown on her head to remember with pride that they knew her. Also that the wasp and the bee were personal friends of hers, and never forgot that gracious relationship to her injury. Never have I been stung by a wasp or a bee. And here is that proud note again, that sings in that little child's elation in being singled out, among all the company of children, for the random dog's honor conferring attentions. Even in the very worst summer for wasps, when, in lunching out of doors, our table was covered with them and everyone else was stung, they never hurt me. When a queen whose qualities of mind and heart and character are able to add distinction to so distinguished a place as a throne, remembers with grateful exultation, after thirty years, honors and distinctions conferred upon her by the humble wild creatures of the forest, we are helped to realize that complimentary attentions, homage, distinctions, are of no caste, but are above all caste, that they are a nobility conferring power apart. We all like these things, when the gate guard at the railway station passes me through unchallenged and examines other people's tickets, I feel as the king, class A, felt when the emperor put the imperial hand on his shoulder, everybody seeing him do it, and as the child felt when the random dog allowed her to pat his head and ostracize the others, and as the princess felt when the wasps spared her and stung the rest, and I felt just so, four years ago in Vienna, and remember it yet, when the helmeted police shut me off, with fifty others, from a street which the emperor was to pass through, and the captain of the squad turned and saw the situation, and said indignantly to that guard, Can't you see it is the hair Mark Twain? Let him through. It was four years ago, but it will be four hundred before I forget the wind of self-complacency that rose in me, and strained my buttons when I marked the deference for me evoked in the faces of my fellow rabble and noted, mingled with it, a puzzled and resentful expression which said, as plainly as speech could have worded it, And who in the nation is the Herr Mark Twain, um Gotteswillen? How many times in your life have you heard this boastful remark? I stood as close to him as I am to you. I could have put out my hand and touched him. We have all heard it many and many a time. It was a proud distinction to be able to say those words. It brought envy to the speaker, a kind of glory, and he basked in it and was happy through all his veins. And who was it he stood so close to? The answer would cover all the grades. Sometimes it was a king, sometimes it was a renowned highwayman, sometimes it was an unknown man killed in an extraordinary way and made suddenly famous by it. Always it was a person who was for the moment the subject of public interest of a village. I was there, and I saw myself. That is a common and envy-compelling remark. It can refer to a battle, to a handing, to a coronation, to the killing of Jumbo by the railway train, to the arrival of Jenny Lind at the battery, to the meeting of the President and Prince Henry, to the chase of a murderous maniac, to the disaster in the tunnel, to the explosion in the subway, to a remarkable dogfight, 
to a village church struck by lightning. It will be said, more or less casually, by everybody in America who has seen Prince Henry do anything, or try to. The man who was absent and didn't see him to anything will scoff. It is his privilege, and he can make capital out of it, too. He will seem, even to himself, to be different from other Americans, and better. As his opinion of his superior Americanism grows, and swells, and concentrates and coagulates, he will go further and try to belittle the distinction of those that saw the prince do things, and will spoil their pleasure in it if he can. My life has been embittered by that kind of person. If you are able to tell of a special distinction that has fallen to your lot, it gravels them. They cannot bear it, and they try to make believe that the thing you took for a special distinction was nothing of the kind, and was meant in quite another way. Once I was received in private audience by an emperor. Last week I was telling a jealous person about it, and I could see him wince under it, see him bite, see him suffer. I revealed the whole episode to him with considerable elaboration and nice attention to detail. When I was through, he asked me what had impressed me most. I said, his majesty's delicacy they told me to be sure and back out from the presence and find the doorknob as best i could it was not allowable to face around now the emperor knew it would be a difficult ordeal for me because of lack of practice and so when it was time to part he turned with exceeding delicacy and pretended to fumble with things on his desk so i could get out in my own way without his seeing me it went home it was vitriol I saw the envy and disgruntlement rise in the man's face. He couldn't keep it down. I saw him try to fix up something in his mind to take the bloom off that distinction. I enjoyed that, for I judged that he had his work cut out for him. He struggled along inwardly for quite a while. Then he said, with a manner of a person who has to say something and hasn't anything relevant to say, You said he had a handful of special brand cigars on the table. Yes. I never saw anything to match them. I had him again. He had to fumble around in his mind as much as another minute before he could play. Then he said in as mean a way as I ever heard a person say anything. He could have been counting the cigars, you know. I cannot endure a man like that. It is nothing to him how unkind he is, so long as he takes the bloom off. It is all he cares for. An Englishman, or other human being, does dearly love a lord, or other conspicuous person. It includes us all. We love to be noticed by the conspicuous person. We love to be associated with such, or with a conspicuous event, even in a seventh-rate fashion, even in the forty-seventh, if we cannot do better. This accounts for some of our curious tastes in mementos. It accounts for the large private trade in the Prince of Wales' hair, which chambermaids were able to drive in that article of commerce when the prince made the tour of the world in the long ago. Hair which probably did not always come from his brush, since enough of it was marketed to refurnish a bald comet. It accounts for the fact that the rope which lynches a negro in the presence of 10,000 Christian spectators is saleable five minutes later at two dollars an inch. It accounts for the mournful fact that a royal personage does not venture to wear buttons on his coat in public. We do love a lord, and by that term I mean any person whose situation is higher than our own. The lord of the group, for instance. 
a group of peers, a group of millionaires, a group of hoodlums, a group of sailors, a group of newsboys, a group of saloon politicians, a group of college girls. No royal person has ever been the object of a more delirious loyalty and slavish adoration than is paid by the vast Tamani herd in its squalid idol in Wanage. There is not a bifurcated animal in that menagerie that would not be proud to appear in a newspaper picture in his company. At the same time, there are some in that organization who would scoff at the people who have been daily pictured in the company with Prince Henry, and would vigorously say that they would not consent to be photographed with him, a statement which would not be true in any instance. There are hundreds of people in America who would frankly say to you that they would not be proud to be photographed in a group with the prince, if invited, and some of these unthinking people would believe it when they said it yet in no instance would it be true we have a large population but we have not a large enough one by several millions to furnish that man he has not yet been begotten and in fact he is not begettable you may take any of the printed groups and there isn't a person in the dim background who isn't visibly trying to be vivid if it is a crowd of ten thousand ten thousand proud untamed democrats horny-handed sons of toil and of politics and flyers of the eagle. There isn't one who is trying to keep out of range. There isn't one who isn't plainly meditating a purchase of the paper in the morning, with the intention of hunting himself out in the picture, and of framing, and keeping it if he shall find so much of his person in it as his starboard ear. We all love to get some of the drippings of conspicuousness, and we will put up with a single humble drop, if we can't get any more. We may pretend otherwise in conversation, but we can't pretend it to ourselves privately, and we don't. We do confess in public that we are the noblest work of God, being moved to it by long habit, and teaching, and superstition. But deep down in the secret places of our souls we recognize that, if we are the noblest work, the less said about it, the better. We of the North poke fun at the South for its fondness of titles, a fondness of titles pure and simple, regardless whether they are genuine or pinchpeck. We forget that whatever a Southerner likes, the rest of the human race likes, and that there is no law of prelediction lodged in one people that is absent from another people. There is no variety in the human race. We are all children, all children of the one Adam, and we love toys. We can soon acquire that southern disease if someone will give it a start. It already has a start, in fact. I have been personally acquainted with over 84,000 persons who, at one time or another in their lives, have served for a year or two on the staffs of our multitudinous governors, and through that fatality have been generals temporarily, and colonels temporarily, and judge advocates temporarily but I have known only nine among them who could be hired to let the title go when it ceased to be legitimate. I know thousands and thousands of governors who ceased to be governors away back in the last century, but I am acquainted with only three who would answer your letter if you failed to call them governor in it. I know acres and acres of men who have done time in the legislature in prehistoric days, but among them is not half an acre whose resentment you would not raise if you addressed them as Mr. instead of on. The first thing a legislature does is convene in an impressive legislative attitude and get itself photographed. Each member frames his copy and takes it to the woods and hangs it up in the most aggressively conspicuous place in his house. 
and if you visit the house and fail to inquire what that accumulation is, the conversation will be brought around to it by the aforetime legislator, and he will show you a figure in it, which in the course of years he has almost obliterated with the smut of his finger marks, and say with a solemn joy, It's me! Have you ever seen a country congressman enter the hotel breakfast room in Washington with his letters, and sit at his table and let on to read them, and wrinkle his brows and frown statesmanlike? keeping a furtive watch out over his glasses all the while to see if he is being observed and admired? Those same old letters which he fetches in every morning? Have you seen it? Have you seen him show off? It is the sight of the national capital, except one, a pathetic one. That is the ex-congressman, the poor fellow whose life has been ruined by a two-year taste of glory and of fictitious consequence who has been superseded and ought to take his heartbreak home and hide it but cannot tear himself away from the scene of his lost little grandeur and so he lingers and still lingers year after year unconsidered sometimes snubbed ashamed of his fallen estate and valiantly trying to look otherwise dreary and depressed but counterfeiting breeziness and gaiety hailing with chummy familiarity which is not always welcomed, the more fortunes who are still in place and were once his mates. Have you seen him? He clings piteously to the one little shred that is left of his departed distinction, the privilege of the floor, and works it hard and gets what he can out of it. That is the saddest figure I know of. Yes, we do so love our little distinctions, and then we lawfully scoff at a prince for enjoying his larger ones, forgetting that if we only had his chance, ah, senator is not a legitimate title. A senator has no more right to be addressed by it than have you or I. But, in several state capitals and in Washington, there are five thousand senators who would take very kindly to that fiction, and who purr gratefully when you call them by it, which you may do quite unrebuked. Then those same senators smile at the self-constructed majors and generals and judges of the South. Indeed, we do love our distinctions, get them how we may, and we work them for all they are worth. In prayer we call ourselves worms of the dust, but it is only a sort of tacit understanding that the remark shall not be taken at par. We, worms of the dust, oh no, we are not that except in fact, and we do not deal much in fact when we are contemplating ourselves. As a race, we do certainly love a lord. Let him be croaker, or a duke, or a prize-fighter, or whatever other personage shall chance to be the head of our group. Many years ago I saw a greasy youth in overall standing by the herald office, with an expectant look in his face. Soon a large man passed out and gave him a pat on the shoulder. That was what the boy was waiting for, the large man's notice. The pat made him proud and happy, and the exultation inside of him shone out through his eyes. And his mates were there to see the pat and envy it and wish they could have that glory. The boy belonged down cellar in the press room. The large man was king of the upper floors, foreman of the composing room. The light in the boy's face was worship. The foreman was his lord, head of his group. The pat was an accolade. It was as precious to the boy as it would have been if he had been an aristocrat's son, and the accolade had been delivered by his sovereign with a sword. The quintessence of the honor was all there. There was no difference in values. In truth, there was no difference present except an artificial one. 
close all the human race loves the lord that is loves to look upon or be noticed by the possessor of power or conspicuousness and sometimes animals born to better things and higher ideals descend to man's level in this matter in the jardin des plantes i have seen a cat that was so vain of being the personal friend of an elephant that i was ashamed of her End of does the race of man love a lord